0: Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively.
1: Your hosts, Candy
0: and Ashley, will
1: discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale.
2: Oh, it's a time. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories in scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories in scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Well,
0: hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. How are you? I am doing really good. How are you doing this? rainy, rainy day.
1: I'm good. We were just saying it's been a little while since we um, recorded an episode. I'm super excited to be back at it. I
0: know. I've forgotten how to set everything up, but thankfully I took a
1: picture. (laughs) And we were just discussing the fact that it is so rainy. Our listeners may hear a little bit of that noise in the background, but it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice to be recording with all that rain mm -hmm. pummeling down.
0: It it, it is pummeling as well. It's very heavy, but it can kind of have that studious studious feel.
1: It sets a tone. Yes there it is. Okay I like it. All right well as our listeners know the tagline for our podcast mm-hmm. is of course the main the main title is Scandal Water but the tagline is peculiar stories of the stage screen and everything in between. So today I thought I would start by asking you a little bit about that in between part. Actually okay. I'm gonna throw another quiz at you. Are All you right. ready? I've got it. Okay, so this focuses in on television. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. This is going to be challenging, specifically, and we're focusing in on the history of television. And so I have pulled three little facts from this research paper called "The History of Television" that was put out by Cornell University. So it's big time stuff.
0: Oh, you know who went to Cornell, don't you?
1: Um, the Office. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Andy. Nard Dog. Andy. That's yes. Right. Okay. So question number one. Who was the first US president to ever be televised?
0: To ever be televised? Mm-hmm. Ooh, was it uh, Richard Nixon? Even earlier. Even earlier. No, that's right, because his debate with Kennedy was televised, and people who heard the debate thought that Nixon won it, but people who watched the debate thought that Kennedy won it.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Hmm. Not Reagan. He was after Nixon. FDR?
1: You got it. FDR. It was FDR. And it was during the opening ceremonies of the 1939 World's Fair. Wow. And a quote that came from this same research paper says that TV sets went on sale to the public the very next day. Mm. And RCA slash NBC began regular broadcasts on a daily basis. And it said by the end of the 30s, there were a few hundred televisions That's in America. It. That's it. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, question number two, what was the first product to be advertised in a commercial on television?
0: Hmm. The first product to be marketed,
1: I would say would be something for the home, a refrigerator. Good guess. But no, it was a watch. Oh. On July 1st, 1941, after the FCC authorized that um, commercial broadcasting could occur, NBC had the very first commercial ever. It was 10 seconds and it was for a watch. Final question. Okay. What was the first major news event to be broken on television?
0: Mm, the end of the war? No, but it's war related. Okay. The bombing? Pearl Harbor. Okay. Okay. Cause I had, if FDR was our first guy, it had to be something related to FDR. Right. Okay.
1: Yeah. Good thinking. So I asked this question. Not because our episode is going to focus on anything related to television, but rather to set some context. Okay. Because if you think about it, we've just said that the very first president to be televised was in 1939. Mm-hmm. We know that we only had a few hundred televisions even by the end of the 30s. So the event that we're talking about today takes place in 1938. So right put,
0: before all those televisions. Before all
1: of this stuff. Okay. Right? Right. So if we didn't have television, as there you go, what was the major entertainment of the time? Mm -hmm. And that medium was radio, radio. right? That's what we're going to be hitting on today is something that relates to radio. And so just a tiny bit of background. When I was doing my research, it said that the golden age of radio refers to a time period that kind of spanned the 30s and the 40s. And that was where or when radio reached the peak of its popularity with the american public. In fact, that was something that that it brought up that in the same way that nowadays we have all kinds of genres and different formats and lengths of time and etc that we can find through Netflix or through television, right. mm-hmm. they had kind of that same idea with radio. They had different genres, different formats, different types of entertainment. So, it was a, it was big. In fact, a lot of different sources mentioned that it wasn't until the 1950s that TV took over Really, the popularity from radio. So radio was hanging on even into the 50s. Wow. There was some type of a survey that took place. I'm, I'm assuming this is something like the Gallup poll of today. But it's, it's called a, a C, C. E. Hooper survey that was taken in 1947 said that even that late, 82 out of 100 Americans were found to be radio listeners. Hmm.
0: 82 out of 100.
1: Have you ever seen the Waltons? Yes. Okay. I think of the Waltons. Where they're all gathered around. Right. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, you know, we're all in front of a TV set watching a Netflix show or Mm -hmm. some type of series or whatever. But on that television series... You would see the whole family gathered around listening to the radio, and some of them would be whittling or, or knitting or whatever, mm-hmm. but that was the big entertainment, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so that's the way it was. That's kind of my image now when I, I think about radio. Yes. Yeah. So the focus of this episode is a very, very famous radio broadcast, which was the War of the Worlds yes. broadcast that occurred on October 30th of 1938. Orson. Orson Wells. So give us just give us a little bit of the background that you know about it, actually. Um,
0: what I know about it is Orson, that scallywag. He did this <laughs> broadcast of the, was it a play? The War of the Worlds? Or anyway, he he did it as if it was a real event. Mm-hmm. And there was all of this backlash where he kind of, I theories are that he kind of fake apologized. Like, oh, I didn't realize that people were going to think it was real. While he's kind of smirking. Like he knew exactly what he was doing. <laughs> and... I think he got in a lot of trouble because there were some people that I don't know if they were suicidal, but they they think that aliens have landed. He's acting like aliens have landed and they thought that it was really a real broadcast Mm -hmm. and they started panicking and there was chaos in the streets.
1: We're going to get into all of that and kind of look at it from a slightly different angle, as Ooh, a matter okay. of fact. So that's coming. But but just to kind of start from the very beginning, let's talk first about some background information about the theater who actually produced that play. Okay, And that was the Mercury Theater on the air. That was the, the little name of the show. And that was a radio series, which, as you said, was hosted by Orson Welles. The series began on July 11th, to be exact, of 1938, and it was a regular program on the CBS radio network. Okay. CBS stood for Columbia Broadcasting System. And it started out, it would air on Mondays at 9 p.m., but then um, in September, it, it switched over to Sundays at 8. Okay. And that's where we were when this particular broadcast came out. Was It was a Sunday show. It was a weekly hour-long show that presented classic literary works.
0: Okay. So, mm, let me try to put my... This is the Mercury Theater. They, every, the, the listener knows they have a time slot. You said 8 o'clock? hmm So when the War of the Worlds came on, it would have been in the Mercury Theater 8 o'clock time slot, right? right. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't they have realized that it was during this time slot? What? That's my question.
1: That is an excellent question that we're going to get into because it was almost a little series of events or circumstances that actually led it to be way more realistic than you would anticipate. Because again, as you said, you would think, oh, everybody knows.
0: This is the Mercury Theater Presents, the Mm -hmm. War of the Worlds, unless they left that little part off and they did a little bleep, 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 this now in, blah, blah, Mm. blah.
1: Okay, keep going. Yeah, no, you're good. You're asking all the right questions and we're going to get to that, I promise. Good, good, good. Okay, so they did produce these classic literary works and this, this great little repertory theater, they're the ones who performed it. And, of course, they, they had people that they brought in who helped write or produce as well. One of those names was John Hausman. And then we're going to find another guy who ends up being instrumental, the writer, Howard. And I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly. K-O-C-H. I'm going to say Cook. The show made headlines with this War of the Worlds broadcast, which came out, as we said, on October 30th. It was billed as their Halloween special. Okay. And it ends up... Becoming one of the most famous broadcasts in radio history due to, as you've already foreshadowed, the panic that we all remember it to have caused. The Mercury Theater on the Air made its last broadcast on December 4th of that year. And then just to kind of fi- finish out its history, it then kind of switched over. It, be- it continued to operate, but under the name of the Campbell Playhouse. I'm making an inference here. It didn't say this, but I think it's because Campbell Soup became their sponsor. Oh, and I think they that took makes that sense. name. Yeah. Yeah. So this particular production by the Mercury Theater was an adaptation of the book, War of the Worlds, by H.G. Wells. Okay. It was written in 1898. Wow. Yeah, that's old. And it was a classic science fiction novel that is considered to be one of the first ever stories written about this idea of of humankind being in conflict with aliens, with extraterrestrials. So it was kind of famous and classic in that sense. So they'd even heard of it. Oh, it was, oh no, they were... They pulled it was because it was classic yeah this was this was a well-known work which maybe had fallen out of popularity It though, must have. because one of the themes that they it keeps talking about is that it was really boring mm, okay yeah it was a challenge 23 year old Orson Welles as we've already said was the host but he also was in charge of directing and narrating and producing it okay and so he brings in this writer that we've mentioned before Howard Cook and he sets him up To be the guy to write the adaptation. And he he, says, make it punchy. He does. He's like, spice this baby up. <laughs> and so um, this was not an easy thing. In fact, you know, this this Howard Cook guy was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is a job here. And so <laughs> he, when-
0: he, The pages have dust falling out of them.
1: <laughs> so the, one of the first things he does is he's like, okay, let's like make this more relevant. So he changes the setting from London, England to modern day New Jersey. And then he like starts putting in all these characters that you would encounter like in a small country town. So he's already trying to like kind of- um, you know, modernize it. it. Mm-hmm. exactly. And then this is key to what you were just saying. He had been instructed by Orson Wells and the producer John Hausman to use this n- new different approach of kind of like the breaking news style. Mm. And Orson Welles, later in his life, when interviewed, explained that he got the idea because 10 years prior to this, he had actually seen Ronald Knox's radio hoax, which was called Broadcasting the Barricades. It was some kind of a production about a riot overtaking London, but he had seen this production that aired on BBC in 1926 and it had used the same format. Okay, so Orson Welles and the other the producer, they thought, "Hey, we'll try that. This could help spice this up. Yeah. Let's do this." Their idea was they were going to set it up as though there was some kind of a featured musical program that was going on oh. that was supposed to be the focus of their episode but oh. it was going to be interrupted by these progressively disturbing updates about this news event that was up unfolding
0: okay right. okay that makes a lot of sense yeah. they, they pulled a janet lee and psycho they're <laughs> like here's the focus never mind this is the focus <laughs>
1: Now, just to kind of build the scene even more, though, even with all of these intentional moves to try to kind of spice this thing up, nobody was feeling good about it. Like prior to prior they to the totally airing date, it. they all thought it was going to be a bust. Really, they weren't nervous. They're
0: like, "Are we going to freak people out?" They didn't. That didn't cross their minds. Not at all
1: not at all in fact you talked about um orson welles being like a little you know sneaky mm-hmm. they think he changed his story like he thought it was going to be a fail and like really? i think it was like almost an attention grabber thing like oh. later when it did get such attention i think he then he tried to pretend like he was crafty about it oh but he but just was like no everybody was scared this. <laughs> <laughs> let's try to save this thing um, but but here are a couple of little details about that. In his autobiography, a radio critic named Ben Gross wrote about the fact that he had approached one of the Mercury Theater's actors during that last week of October to, you know, just to kind of check in and ask if Wells had, you know, was prepared for Sunday night. And here's a quote from the actor. Just between us, it's lousy. Oh. And then he goes on to say that the broadcast would probably, quote, bore you to death. And then Wells had told the Saturday Evening Post later in his life that he had called the studio that week to see how things were going. And he, he heard from one of the technicians, very dull, very dull. What It'll put him happened? to sleep. I know.
0: And was it the final, was what they were calling dull the final thing they got produced?
1: Yes. They, I mean, they just thought that the plot and the story was so outdated and uh-huh. so boring that even with everything they were doing, they just felt like it was going to be a fail. I guess not, guys. So so let's talk about the they plot. The shot the mark. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so the basic plot, we've already kind of alluded to it, but it starts with Orson Welles introducing his radio play with his spoken introduction that mm-hmm. he always does. And, and there's an announcer who reads a weather report. And then it seems as though... They've put that aside, and the announcer takes all the listeners to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you're going to be entertained by the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra and so then they play some dance music for a while and then they start to introduce the conflict. Now it was funny because one of the comments that I read about in in some of the different articles said that that people were even further concerned because in order to really try to sell it they said that Orson Welles like let the music play and went into this musical program so long that they thought they were going to lose audience members from that.
0: Wow. But he
1: felt like it was necessary to really kind of build, you know, build this situation. Yes. To sell it. Yes. So, so after um, they kind of introduced the conflict, you, you had this announcer who broke in to report that Professor Farrell of the Mount Jenning Observatory had detected explosions on the planet Mars. They go back to music they come back in a little later with another interruption in which listeners are informed that a large meteor had crashed into a farmer's field in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. And then it just keeps going. And just for fun, Ashley, one of these these early announcements that are kind of exciting, introducing uh-huh. the conflict, I've got it quoted here. And I thought maybe you could read it oh, to no. us <laughs> in your very best dramatic okay. um, announcer uh, tone here okay so it's just this section that starts right there the good heavens yes okay and i'm supposed to be an announcer you yes yeah, very traumatized you're you're <laughs> disturbed by what you're saying
0: this is sort of like what is that thing that he, Les Nessman says they're falling from the sky <laughs> the like bags of wet cement okay let's see good heavens he declared something's wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake now here's another and another one and another one they look like tentacles to me I can see the thing's body now. It's large. Large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but that face, it... it, Oh, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and... The eyes are black and and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate
1: well done (laughs) thank you very much that was a cold reading cold reading friends awesome
0: les (laughs) Nessman was my inspiration
1: (laughs) well very well done so the play goes on and ultimately we get to this description of a martian attack Uh on the military and the civilians who had turned up at the site now here's the thing okay you were asking how it it fooled people yeah And, and there were several elements right Another fact that contributed to that was the fact that Orson Welles and his troupe were so realistic with their sound effects. Oh yeah. And they probably acting. weren't
0: as corny as my reading just then.
1: They were amazing. Apparently yeah. um, it talked about in one source that I read that the actor who played the reporter was so committed to trying to to really embody this this character and to convey the horror of witnessing this martian attack Mm -hmm. that he studied the recording of the hindenburg disaster (gasps) oh he listened to it oh
0: the humanity exactly Mm -hmm. over
1: and over again he listened to try to mimic that anguish and the disbelief in the broadcaster's voice and it it this disaster had actually only occurred like a year before. Oh,
0: gosh. Yeah. That's too soon. That's hashtag too soon, guys. so it was
1: probably still in everybody's consciousness and and that emotion was so high. So I can see where that could have been affecting. Yeah. You know, and then here's another little factor. It said that networks at that time were not allowed to allow people to impersonate a president because rightly so, to my way of thinking, it could be misleading the listeners. Yeah. But Wells... knew that his actor, who was playing a high-ranking government official, had the talent of sounding like FDR. Uh-huh.
0: And we're, we're saying that he didn't says he doesn't know, know. what was going on. I I don't know. <laughs> this is a guy that made Citizen Kane It was like, I don't know who it's about. <laughs> I don't know. I think he's a little... Yeah. He's squirrelier <laughs> than he's admitting.
1: I, I'm going to support that uh, inference. <laughs> but, but, you know, he kind of did the nudge-nudge. Hey, why don't you sound presidential okay. as you deliver these lines and so the actor who was named kenneth delmar did and ended up sounding very much like fdr before we go any further just we, we had your wonderful reading ashley was but it okay It Thanks. was. it was fantastic <laughs> thank but let, let's, you, thank you so let's much let's hear an actual short short sure. okay from the production just so that we can give the audience an idea of, of how it sounded in all actuality we are bringing you
2: an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmeth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey.
0: And that's the music, right? Mm hmm. Okay.
2: We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, here I am back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmeth's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Ah, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. A shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. But that is a jet of flames springing from the mirror that leads right, right that. at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. I'm to you by the wood to find The gas tank tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now
0: Okay. Okay, I can totally see how they
1: thought it was real. <laughs> so we're going to dig more into the actual event itself, but let's take a short break first. All right. So we are back and ready to talk about the actual event itself. The War of the Worlds on October 30th, 1938.
0: Yeah. I think those sound effects are what sells it. If he was just like us with no real background sound effects, you would be able to tell this is not real. But those sirens and the people and the
1: screaming, yes, that definitely sold it. Mm -hmm. Yes. We've, We've already hit on several factors, but let's add a couple more. Okay. So, here's the thing. Orson Welles was very careful to start with that introduction that introduced their theater and here's what we're about and mm-hmm. we're going to be producing this literary work and even gave a disclaimer alerting the audience that this was a fictional drama. They also very carefully planned a, a disclaimer to occur partway through the production so that if anybody did join late, they would hear that. However... Because of the breaking news format that they chose to use, and because of his slow build there, it ended up pushing their first set of commercial breaks back, or at least the commercial breaks where they intended to do the disclaimer. It pushed it back until it was 40 minutes into the episode before that next disclaimer came. Okay. Now, to contribute to this, according to the site This Day in History, Sunday evening in 1938 was prime time in the golden age of radio. Yeah. Millions of Americans tuning in, but most of them were not listening to the Mercury Theater. Oh. Um, at that time, as this particular night, there was a ventriloquist, Edgar Bergen, and Oh, his... Candace
0: Bergen's dad? Yes. Okay. And his
1: dummy Charlie McCarthy. Yep. And they were playing on a different show on NBC. And so wait. A ventriloquist and his dummy <laughs> yeah. were on the radio. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess the different voices were okay. really important. <laughs> okay, yeah, that is it is interesting though to think without a visual. Yeah, I wonder if it was filmed live. I wonder if it was one of those things where it had to not be filmed, because I can be
0: a ventriloquist on the radio. <laughs>
1: That's a good point. <laughs> I bet I bet it was a live thing. Where it had, you had to an be. audience, but you also then put it filmed on the, it. Yes, yeah, yes, like a
0: podcast now now would be like watch us live on YouTube, but then the audio is on on the uh,
1: podcasting. I don't mm, know. Good point. So, anyway, Edgar Bergen and his Ventriloquist Dummy were very very popular and it ran long and so it was only around 812 that that show ended and so people speculate that a lot of listeners only tuned into the mercury theater after the disclaimer Mm -hmm. the first disclaimer exactly i got you so they join in and it's probably already to the point of the news the breaking news broadcasts about the martians or the meteor or whatever where things appeared to be happening that were disturbing
0: and they had telephones then so who knows they could have been calling their neighbors and be like oh there's a breaking news you got to turn it on this channel and then they all tuned in too
1: absolutely now again to kind of follow this through As you have heard, I had heard, too, about this widespread panic, people running from their homes to escape the Martian invasion. I've heard about people having heart attacks. Yeah. And you can find support for this in research. For example, on um, History.com, here's a quote that I saw. Thousands of anxious and confused listeners believed it to be real. They besieged police departments, newspapers, and CBS with phone calls. In New Jersey, ground zero for the fictitious invasion – National Guardsmen wanted to know where they should report for duty, and the Trenton Police Department fielded 2,000 calls in under two hours. Wow. In Providence, Rhode Island, hysterical callers begged the electric company to cut power to the city to keep it safe from the extraterrestrial invaders.
0: Wow. I think it most interesting what you just read, that the National Guard was like, where do we report? Not, is this real? They were all about believing the alien invasion. They weren't questioning it at all. They're just like, hey... What's our marching orders? Where do we need to go?
1: Yeah, but there's a twist. Oh, okay. What is it? The twist is, in more recent years, the theory has emerged that there really wasn't this widespread panic that all of us believe to be true. Okay. In fact, this is just for, you know, cleverness, but one source called it the first instance of fake news.
0: What was the fake news? The fake news was the broadcast. So there's, they're saying that the, the fake news of the fake news is that people panicked about it?
1: Yep why okay okay here we go all right we're going deeper So this is a this is a theory, okay,
0: okay,
1: that possibly the newspaper industry did this purposefully because they were feeling some unease from the increasing popularity of radio as a, a source of information and advertising, and that this was maybe a chance to strike back at them, regardless of what that whether that's their rationale or not. That was one person one source's theory. Here's what we do know: some of the newspapers did have major reports about this. In fact, I have a picture here that I put in here of the New York Times cover that says radio listeners in panic taking war drama as fact and it has the subtitle many flea homes to escape gas raid from Mars phone calls swamp police at broadcast of the what's that say Wells fantasy so this I'm looking at this headline but what we think to be true now is that a lot of these newspapers kind of pulled in individual reports and then kind of wove it together into this narrative of a mass hysterical reaction because newspapers were reporting suicide attempts, heart attacks. Again, these exoduses from Major So the
0: newspaper was trying to thwart the radio business?
1: Well, that's one theory that they were trying to kind of push back at radio and, and kind of say that radio leads to some bad things. Oh, okay. I don't know if that's true or if it was just like, hey, here's a way to sell papers. You know, nowadays we still see that happening a lot. Mm-hmm. Sensationalizing, mm-hmm. focusing on negative mm-hmm. rather than anything hopeful mm-hmm. or positive just because people will tune into that or yeah. will buy that. It's it, In the newscasting world, it's called, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm, no, Yeah, exactly. That's a great example. Uh, here's an, an example of a different newspaper headline. The New York Daily News printed... Fake radio war stirs terror through the U.S. And it had a photograph of a supposed war victim, a woman in a sling who had heard the reports of black gas clouds in Times Square and had run out from her Midtown apartment into the street where she fell and broke her arm. And and so there were several different examples of, of headlines. But here's an article published by ABC News that agrees that the mass hysteria reported after the broadcast may have actually been sensationalized. Here's the quote, popular myth detailed people flooding out of their homes in a panic, but several theories have emerged in recent years suggesting that no widespread panic occurred, especially since most people probably were listening to the comedy variety show Chase and Sanborn Hour, which aired at the same time what we believe to be true is some listeners did mistake those bulletins for the real thing and there were some anxious phone calls to the police i know what i was going to ask yes go ahead
0: is there anyone alive that heard it that could tell us that's where i would like eyewitness who was Mm. there and could say yeah there was all the neighbors were up in arms did they ask any of those people
1: i didn't see anything about that what we know to be true is that there are are some people making phone calls, some people who But panicked, not that many. But that yes, that the okay. newspaper took it and made it seem as though it was this huge widespread panic. Okay. When it really was probably an a, a case of isolated examples.
0: Okay, gotcha.
1: What happened, by the way, was that the next morning after again, remember these newspaper headlines came out the next day, so that next morning twenty three year old Orson Wells was basically under fire. Um, He got called into the broadcast office and had to try to explain what had happened. Um, In fact, here's here's what it said in one of the articles. Wells barely had time to glance at the papers, leaving him only with a horribly vague sense of what he had done to the country. He'd heard these reports of mass stampedes, suicides, angry listeners who were threatening to shoot him on sight. And at the time, he was quoted as saying... If I'd planned to wreck my career, I couldn't have gone about it any better. (laughs) And so he ends up going, kind of doing a news conference. It said he went before dozens of reporters, photographers, and newsreel cameramen at this hastily arranged press conference in the CBS building. And he tried to explain everything behind it. He He just said, JK, LOL. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Now, the funny thing is, again, as, as we kind of said a little bit ago, later, he... Like the attention, and right. he liked taking credit for it, and okay. it said that he would sometimes give these playful responses to hint that he had done this intentionally, okay? Because he wanted people to guess and think maybe that he was witty enough and clever enough to have planned this. But in an article in the Smithsonian Magazine, it says that it was very clear through script notes, memories of people involved, you know, different things that they had documented that no one had ever suspected the response the radio play would receive. They felt like the drama was silly, that it was unbelievable, and that was, again, one of the reasons why they'd even used that breaking news format to just try to make it more relatable to the public. And the Smithsonian article had the quote, the elements of the show that a fraction of its audience found so convincing crept in almost accidentally as the Mercury desperately tried to avoid being laughed off the air. Wow. So the fact that he he later took credit for being okay. so crafty about it is kind of funny. At the time, the Federal Communications Commission did investigate, but they found no law was broken, so he did not get in any trouble. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. He was good. He was able to go on and make Citizen Kane. Exactly. And that's what it said, was this actually led to probably the biggest break in his career. Mm-hmm. The networks did agree that they were going to be more cautious in their programming in the future. And as you said, um, by 1941, he had directed, written, produced, and starred in Citizen Kane. By the
0: way, there's actually a current news event surrounding Citizen Kane. Have you heard of this? No. Okay, just the last couple days. Citizen Kane was one of a handful of movies that had 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh. But it very quietly has now lost that 100% perfect rating because they found an old review from when it first came out, an 80-year-old review where the guy was basically like, meh, it's okay. And they've been adding the old reviews to these movies, and it took it down to 80%. Are you serious? I'm serious. And now apparently there's some kind of... Paddington 2 is one of these movies that has 100%. <laughs> and now there's a group of TikTokers who have made it their goal to make sure that Paddington 2 has a higher rating than Citizen Kane.
1: Oh, you are kidding I'm me. I'm not kidding you.
0: No. So that's your current event for this <laughs> show right now i don't know where it'll be when this airs everybody look it up google it and see what's happening see where we stand on the citizen Kane, citizen Kane versus paddington, paddington. 2 <laughs> not even the first one paddington 2 it yeah.
1: makes me wonder though i mean to take it from 100 down to 80 either it didn't have many reviews or they might have found more than one mm-hmm. negative one no that's i don't a...
0: think it had very many oh okay i don't think so okay. i don't know that makes sense
2: armchair psychologist
1: Okay, Ashley. So moving into our armchair psychologist moment. Okay. Right. First, I have to kind of set this up. So for the people who did panic, right? Because we we are acknowledging that there were some isolated incidents of people who really panicked over this. Right. We're just saying that it may not have been as widespread as we have all believed in popular culture. Okay? Okay. So in this research paper called Broadcast Hysteria, Orson Welles, War of the Worlds and the Art of Fake News by Princeton historian. It was a doctoral student, actually. He did a little research into why it would have impacted people so deeply Mm -hmm. and why fake news in general, even thinking about more relevant, more Uh recent times, Uh why fake news sometimes hits us and takes off versus those times when we can very easily distinguish. Mm -hmm. So here are a couple of his inferences, his conclusions, okay? He says that a survey of the frightened listeners at that time, War of the Worlds, indicated only about a third understand the invaders to be Martians. The rest imagined something more plausible that they already feared, which was like a Nazi blitzkrieg. So when they only caught... Parts of it, their brains were going to Nazis rather than Martians. Okay, And so what he went on to say, this researcher, is that he felt the broadcast didn't bypass the conscious intellect. I'm quoting, by the way, you can tell. Didn't bypass the conscious intellect to convince people of something they wouldn't otherwise believe. In other words, it built on their pre-existing fears or their beliefs, and that's why they internalized it and were so panic. Yes. So he further goes on to say that the most extreme examples of panic often came from the people who were told to tune in by someone else. Mm. So Like what I said about calling and saying, "Oh my gosh, you have to listen to this." Exactly. A game of telephone. Exactly. And if you trusted the person right. who told you right. the messenger who said to tune in, it was almost as though they had given credibility to it and yes. they had said this is real. Okay. And so those were the people who panicked the most. Right. And so this now brings us back to today and fake news even today. These studies say that two fundamental rules of persuasion with media messages are that, number one, you generally cannot convince audiences of something that goes exactly against their already existing attitudes or prejudices. Mm -hmm. So if it already if it taps into our beliefs, we're more likely to go with it. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's more powerful when it's shared. which is why the way our social media is set up where people are sharing things all the time. Yes, you trust the source. Right, can feed it and cause it to go viral or to spread so much more widely. So my question to you, what are your thoughts about this theory? Do you think it's true? Do you think that this really does play out this way in our modern world? Or is he generalizing too much?
0: Wait, you're not hitting me with a light question, are you? (laughs) What do you think about the... The status of the world and their fears. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think that he makes really good points. I think uh, you have co- I think you have core beliefs. So your core beliefs are X, Y, or Z, and it's going to be really hard to shake you from those core beliefs, mm-hmm. unless unless someone with a similar core belief comes to you and says X, Y, or Z. This has just happened. Then that I would think that would be the one time where you would reflect and go, this person and I believe exactly the same. And they're saying this is real. Maybe it is real, which, which gets that little bit of anxiety and that little bit of doubt, which is where fear can anxiety and and doubt is a seed where fear can sprout and grow. So once it has sprouted and grown, then that can take a hold of your mind. And then you start researching it and you look for you look for um, either confirmation or non confirmation. And if everybody else is doing the same thing. There's like this confirmation bias. It just Mm -hmm. kind of grows and grows and grows. So I don't know if that made any sense, but I think it, what he is saying does make sense. And if some of the people believed it and they told other people that they believed it and they believe them, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that just goes on down the line. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Does that make sense?
1: Yes. I think I followed you. and, and (laughs) (laughs) And I agree with what you said about the confirmation bias. I think a lot of times we are we are looking for that
0: yeah we already
1: yeah. we already have either this belief that our opinion that we hold true. And so we're looking for something that's going to affirm it, evidence mm-hmm. that's going to support it, or a mm-hmm. person who also goes along with that same mm-hmm. way of thinking. Or because our fears, are, that's so highly emotional, so deeply ingrained. That's what I was going to
0: say too, the emotions. Mm-hmm. That's what they did is with this broadcast, they tapped into the emotion of it,
1: mm-hmm. which was the fear.
0: And that's a really good point about the Nazis. Until you said that, I was like,
1: oh. It's also interesting to think about, They had it was not a video, you didn't. You couldn't rely on any visual mm-hmm. images, and and I think about the fact that I could be wrong, but it seems like nowadays we probably are not as great at listening, maybe as they were back during that time frame. Mm-hmm. I bet we've become more visual as a society mm-hmm. over the years, just because of our situation. But even so, in their, I, I haven't seen their script, but if if they kept using vague language, invaders invasion mm-hmm. you know and they talked about like the rays or the f- weapons rather than the terminology you know what i'm saying because yes. you, you, you know that word alien or that word martian if they weren't using those words right you could fill in
0: you could fill in with your own mm-hmm. fear or if you were half listening so what's the lesson we can learn from this do you think don't believe everything always investigate always seek that kind of thing
1: that's a good lesson i think looking for evidence and trying to be more evidence-based and more thoughtful mm-hmm. and more logical mm-hmm. with our reasoning during those opportunities where we might be tempted to be swayed by emotion mm-hmm. or preconceived don't be reactive notions. don't
0: be so yeah. reactive be more thoughtful more considerate don't just shoot from the hip mm-hmm. so to speak like put some thought behind it and go really like right. really, let me look at this. Let me, let me. And also, maybe don't be afraid to listen to differing opinions in your own. Right. And don't just shut them down because well they don't think like I do. Mm-hmm. Well then you're you're going to be preaching to the choir or you're going to be listening to the same opinions and that's just going to reinforce what you already think. Let's have some different opinions. Mm-hmm. And again, don't be emotional. Uh, don't be emotional and reactive to those differing opinions. If you respect the person and they have a different opinion, then you go, okay, I respect this person, but we don't think the same. Now, mm-hmm. why is that? Where are you coming from with your different opinion? That's getting a little more philosophical than just this mm-hmm. entertainment-based thing. I would say in entertainment, if there's breaking news, always double-check that. Mm-hmm. Like, now we can Google it. If you hear a breaking news thing, I would Google it and go, did this really happen? Mm-hmm. Or I would go to TikTok or go to some something and look for eyewitness accounts and yeah. see if anybody else has that same perspective
1: yeah a lot of it is just the simple trying to be a critical consumer look at the source yeah look look at the evidence Mm -hmm. kind of take it from a logical stance
0: yeah i think that seems like
1: always good advice yeah
0: (laughs) you heard it here folks from two people who are not you forgot to give your spill we don't know what we're doing these are just our opinions, right? There you go. I did it at the end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> by now, they probably know I us well
0: so. enough. To, if this is your first episode, no credence at all. Yeah, don't listen to us. <laughs> well,
1: cheers to these researchers. Yeah, you know? how, yeah. How about them looking at something that we've just kind of taken for granted and assumed mm-hmm. to be truth all these years and digging a little deeper?
0: Yes, but also a second cheers to sneaky, sneaky Orson Welles. <laughs> there you go. I'm still on the fence, and if he knew it or not. I I could go either way. Yep. (laughs) All right.
1: Cheers. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown.
0: All music was written, composed performed and mixed by josh martin the artwork was designed by matt c adams
1: as a reminder this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes the thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of scandal water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests advertisers or
0: clearly professional psychologists
1: thanks for listening